And I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning, if you have them, to uh, the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you need a Bible to use, you should find one in one of the chair racks down around you. And if you don't have your own Bible, uh, let us know. We'll get you one, or you can go find one. You're really going to need it through this series, because if you know, we're in a series called Aliens. Uh, It's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, who he addresses as aliens in the world. What's that about? It's about... Uh, the, the, who these people really were, these early Christians, because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, because of, of their obedience to what God says is right and good. At times, Peter says, that as, as followers of Jesus, they're going to they're gonna be misunderstood. They're going to be viewed as a strange uh, and a peculiar people, people who don't always, uh, always fit in. And so uh, we've been working through the opening paragraphs of the document, and last week we looked at how Peter reminds his listeners of, of what it really means to be a Christian, how he says it's not about good works or human performance or achievement. He says, concerning the salvation of your souls, grace has come to you through the suffering of the Messiah. Grace through Jesus. And we noted how in Scripture, grace isn't just about God giving us what we don't deserve, but also God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Instead of enmity, love. Instead of retribution, mercy. Instead of judgment, forgiveness. Instead of hell, heaven. Instead of death, life. And the idea of that is just, you know, it's so unexpected, it's so counterintuitive that when we finally understand it, you know, when we finally understand the truth of God's grace, it is humbling, it is shocking to the soul, it is transformative to our lives. So that brings us up to where we left off last week. Let's keep, let's keep moving through this and see what Peter says next uh, to these early Christians. Uh, let's start in verse 13. He writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Uh, before we keep going, let's, let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we are thankful for the sunshine today uh, and uh, for the the opportunity to be together as your people, to celebrate life, to celebrate family, um, to experience a community uh, here as your, your family, the church. And uh, we commit ourselves to you today. We commit our minds to you, our hearts to you, our souls to you. We ask that you would speak to us and teach us what we need to, what we need to learn today. Um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if any of you have um, noticed this or not so far in the study, but up until this point of the document, um, Peter has offered no directives to the church. Have you guys noticed that? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't tell his readers to do anything. He explains a lot. He affirms a lot. Uh, but he doesn't give any commands until he gets here to verse 13. And he starts off the verse by using the word therefore, which uh, on the surface... Uh, may not seem like a big deal, but syntactically, grammatically, uh, it's quite important because, well, to our, to our journalists and English majors, it's a conjunctive adverb, but for simple guys like me, it's a linking word. It, uh, it um, shows cause and effect. It indicates that what, that what Peter's about to write, all the commands that he's about to give uh, are based on, linked to everything that he's already said. And what has he already said? Well, he said that as Christians, we've been given new birth into a living hope. As sons and daughters of God, we, we have guaranteed inheritance in heaven. We have divine protection. When trials do enter our lives, and they do, we understand that they're temporary, that they serve to prove and refine our faith. And ultimately, we know that because of Jesus, we are eternally secure. And as a result, we're able to rejoice in all circumstances because the realities of God's grace and truth far exceed anything this world has to offer. 
pleasurable or painful, good or bad. Therefore, Peter says, therefore, based on all of that, he says, think intentionally, think carefully. He writes, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The word we translate alert comes from a Greek term which literally means to gird up. In the ancient Near East, uh, it was custom uh, for, for, for people, including men, to wear uh, long tunics that dressed like garments that would go all the way down to the ankles. And so whenever a person was getting ready to work or, or to run or move around much, they'd have to reach down, gather all the material together, pull it up, uh, and tuck it into the belt uh, so that they could move around freely and, and quickly without stumbling. Well, Peter takes this garment term and he applies it figuratively to the mind. And he, and he actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. And because this idea of girding up is, is foreign to us, um, a contemporary translation might be, pull up and tighten the pants of your mind. And with all due respect to fashion, given the way some people choose to wear their pants these days, very baggy and hanging down, this makes a lot of sense. He's saying, you know, pull up your pants, get them, you know, tighten them up, get ready for action. Essentially, Peter's saying, prepare yourselves for action. How? By thinking intentionally. And not only that, but thinking soberly, which means wisely, circumspectly. Here's the point. Peter is telling Christians that in light of what you know, in light of who you are, in light of what you've been given, he says, pull your thoughts together and prepare mentally for life and for the challenges and the difficulties and the temptations that will inevitably come your way. Now, some of us might react to that and say, well, you know, obviously preparation is a good thing, but how do we know what to pre prepare for? I mean, life is, life is unpredictable. It's full of surprises. You know, how, how do you know if you're going to be robbed or injured in a car accident or attacked by terrorists or betrayed by a friend or seduced by a coworker? How do you know that? How do you know whether to prepare for ris the risks of, of wealth or poverty, uh, divorce or cancer? A meth addiction or a porn addiction? How do, you, how do you prepare for that? And I'm not sure I can answer all of that, but I, it seems to me there are a couple things we can do to prepare ourselves. First, we can, tr we can try to anticipate the possibilities. I mean, it's no secret to any of us in the room, we live in a broken world where, where pain and, 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 and uh, suffering and injustice and trials and, and temptations are just part of the human experience. And so, and so trying to think through what might happen can help us react appropriately when and if it does. For example, uh, if, you are, if you are a public servant, a police officer, uh, an elected official, uh, given that we live near Chicago, perhaps you may need to anticipate the possibility of being bribed at some point, right? Uh, and how, how will you respond to that? Uh, if, um, if your company is a place where it's easy to falsify documents or where you can take a five-finger discount, you know, you know what I'm saying? What are you going to do when given uh, the chance to steal some? Uh, if heart disease runs in the family, how are you going to react if your cardiologist brings you some bad news? If you hang around with, with people who are, who are prom promiscuous, how do you plan on dealing with uh, an illicit sexual advance? But here, here's the deal. Anticipating these things isn't really enough because preparing also means confirming your values. You know, as Christians, if, if you take time to consider what it means before God to be a just, honest, faithful, loving, generous, moral person, then you're going to be in a much better position to respond well when difficult or compromising situations present themselves. And then finally, we need to determine to trust God. You know, based on what we know of God's love, grace, goodness, faithfulness, on what he has done, what he promises to do, you know, we can make a conscious, personal, you know, 
preemptive decision to trust him no matter what life throws our way. But my fear is some of us don't do that. Some of us don't think ahead. And if we don't, then when trials come, they tend to crush us. And when temptations come, they tend to overtake us because it's really hard to think clearly in moments of pain, crisis, and enticement. So Peter's telling us that sound, sound thinking ahead of time leads to sound judgment. He goes on and says, And set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Here's my Ray K. summary of that. Peter's saying, look, and overall, keep the big picture in your mind. Don't forget that God's grace, which comes through Jesus, uh, will ultimately deliver us from all sin and suffering forever. And so Peter's first command to the church, think intentionally, think carefully. Second command, act obediently. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Or to put another way, now that you've thought intentionally, now that you've thought carefully, he says, don't allow evil to shape your behavior as if you are uninformed. I recently saw an ad for the Academy Awards that are going to be presented next month. And uh, as I was reading through this text, I thought of, a, of an Academy Award winning movie that came out a while back. Uh, it, was, it was called A Beautiful Mind. And I don't know if any of you remember it or if you're familiar with it, but it's the story of, of a guy named John Nash, who, uh, as a Ph.D. student at Princeton University in the 1950s, wrote a theory of economic equilibrium that won him instant notoriety. Uh, he graduated with honors. He got married, became a very well-known professor at Princeton. Uh, he had a lot of things going for him, but Nash also had undiagnosed schizophrenia. And the film is a, is a, is a rather vivid and sometimes uh, disturbing portrayal of the battle for his mind. Long story short, uh, with the help of family and friends and professionals, John Nash was able to gain control of his life and function outside of, of, of inst being institutionalized. But still today, he sometimes sees and hears people who aren't there. You know, voices invite him to bizarre and disruptive and destructive behavior. For his entire life, John Nash has struggled against these forces. In his case, it's been a pretty well-fought fight. In 1994, he won the Nobel Prize and to this day remains a member of the math department at Princeton University. You say, well, what's the connection here with Peter? The connection is this. In verse 14, Peter seems to portray a similar type of battle raging within all of us. Not schizophrenia, but an ongoing struggle with evil desires, the desires of our of our broken, rebellious, and sinful nature. And let's not be coy about it. I mean, we all have them. We all have evil desires that at times speak to us, push us, tempt us, and can destroy us if allowed to control our thoughts and behaviors. Some of these desires are violent and harmful. Others are prized and promoted by our culture. And I can tell you this, you know, before becoming a Christian, I don't know what, what was up, what was down, what was right, what was wrong, or why, why I should really even care one way or another. But once we become followers of Jesus, as God's people and with God's spirit at work within each of us, uh, we begin to grow and we learn and, and we're no longer ignorant, right? I mean, we, we come to recognize the evil and destructiveness of arrogance and injustice and racism and lust and sexual immorality and envy and greed and deceit and violence and, and so forth. But even though we recognize those things, we still have to decide if we're going to allow those such evil to shape our lives or not. And uh, for me, for me, the one word that Peter uses here that's really helpful, especially when it comes to this issue of obedience, is the word children. Because it tells me that obedience to God requires a new view of authority. See, for some people in our world today, God is not much more really than, he's not much more than a divinely irritated killjoy. 
who issues capricious rules and regulations for us to, to keep and follow and then sits back to see how long it takes us human knuckleheads to violate them. You know what I'm saying? So that he can judge us and then he can squash us like bugs. And therefore, uh, any of our attempts at obedience come from a place of religious, fearful anxiety. Others see him as a disconnected deity who, who either doesn't really care what we do or is affectionately tolerant of anything we decide. But Peter and Christianity in general describe God much differently than that. They describe God as a heavenly father who, who loves and cares about what happens to his children and wants to protect them from the pain and destructiveness of sin. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think I fully understood this until I became a father. And I experienced this, this intense and unconditional love for my children. And, and I can tell you, you know, any authority or direction that I have attempted to assert in their lives has always and only been about wanting to protect them from what I know is destructive. Well, God is the same way as our creator. He knows what is right and what is good and what is healthy and what is best and what is safe for us. And as a heavenly father, he he loves us way too much not to give us direction. And sin is really all about ignoring the direction. It's all about rejecting that, that, that direction and that authority. Tell me, how do you view God? Personally, how do you view him? And why do you think he calls you to honesty, generosity, justice, peace, compassion, purity, faithfulness? See, how you, how you answer those two questions influences your obedience or lack thereof. Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, he's saying, now that you know, you know who God is and, and how much he loves you and how much he wants the best for you. He says, think intentionally, think clearly. Act obediently. And then the third command is this. Be different. Be holy. He writes, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In scripture, the Hebrew and Greek terms we translate holy uh, literally mean to be cut off, to be separate. Uh, separated to be set apart. And when applied to God, holy means that as creator, God is set apart from us. He is off our scales as human beings. He is transcendently above and beyond us because he is perfectly good and, and loving and merciful and powerful and just and righteous. He is just totally unique from us as human beings. When the word holy is applied to us as human beings, it means that we are set apart as well. We are separated unto God. Now, a lot of people today at best think of a holy person. They imagine a holy person as somebody who, who acts very piously and keeps all the rules. But holiness, you know, goes much, much deeper than just keeping rules. Holiness is an attitude of the heart in which, in which you say to God, I'm yours, set apart for you, use me. I mean, understand the difference. A religious person says to God, hey, just give me the rules. Just give me the rules so I can give a shot at them. I'll try my best. Just give them to me. I'll get at it. A holy person, a holy person says to God, I belong to you. I'm set apart for your purposes. I'm yours. Use me. In the Old Testament, God wanted the Israelites to be different, to be set apart from all the other nations around them so uh, to serve as those uniquely belonging to him, representing him as a way of pointing others to him. And, and so God said to the, the Israelites in Leviticus 11, that, that Peter is actually quoting here, he says to the people, be holy because I am holy. Be different because I'm different. Here's my, here's my reiki summary of that. God wants, if I could be so bold as to speak for God, God wants his people to be different, to be set apart, to embrace goodness 
and moral integrity and be separate, separated from evil. In other words, he wants us to be and look more like him so that others can, know, can come to know him. Listen, I, I cannot stand up here and pretend to be an expert on this whole holiness deal because I'm not. I mean, I, I'm still working to unravel all that it means and all the implications uh, it, it has for my life and my relationships. But with that said, here are a few things that I've been learning about it for what it's worth. Uh, first, holiness is commanded. It's commanded for our good and for God's glory. I mean, there's no questioning about it. You know, we are clearly called uh, to to desire, to embrace, to pursue moral excellence in our lives and in our relationships. And that includes not only our behaviors, but our attitudes. I mean, to be blunt about it, holiness is not a hobby. It's not an option. Holiness is both a process and a product of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's evidence of God's presence and power in our lives. In his own letter to uh, to Christians in the early church, the apostle John wrote this. He said, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not a child of God. Now, before some of us freak out about that, understand what John is not saying. He is not saying that if you're a Christian, you're you're never going to mess up. You're never going to sin. You're never going to act rebelliously. He's not saying that. In fact, earlier in his letter, John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we're liars. So what is his point about this whole idea of not going on sinning? Well, he's saying that anyone who continues to live a life of habitual rebellion against what God says is right and good and healthy and safe for us, with no sense of, uh, of conviction, no desire to repent or change, he says that person has not been born of God. Because even though we all struggle with rebellion and we all struggle with sin, as God's children, we long to be like our Heavenly Father. And we know He, he has our best in mind. And his spirit is at work in our lives, transforming us into the very image of Jesus, who exemplifies holiness in every way. So holiness is commanded. It's a process and product of being a Christian. And holiness requires biblical, biblical knowledge. In some ways, that's what Peter's getting at in verse 13 when he says, hey, get your thoughts together, prepare your mind for life. Because practical holiness demands we be critical thinkers who know, what, who know what's right. Because if you don't know what's right, you can't really choose what's right. In other words, our obedience is predicated on scriptural literacy. God has given us his written word, not simply as a piece of ancient literature to be dissected and critiqued in some vain academic exercise. It's not meant to be treated like an esoteric manuscript, a manuscript that can only be interpreted by a limited number of clerical scholars or uh, brainiacs. I mean, God has given his word to you and to me, to all of us as just average people. Why? So that we can read it and we can understand more about who God is and what he says is right and best for us and then apply that truth to our lives and relationships. It's, it's for our benefit. It's for our well-being. As the Apostle Paul put it once, he said, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you guys have been around Parkview long enough, you've heard me say it, and I'll say it again. As a Christian, you cannot obey what you do not know. Reading, studying scripture, either alone or in a life group, uh, is critical for all of us in a world where we're constantly being pressured to follow the crowd. And that's why that's why Paul wrote to the church and said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So holiness requires biblical knowledge. Holiness demands courage. It demands courage because once we know what's right, we've got to have the guts to do it. I mean, here's the deal. 
whether we like it or not. Somewhere around the middle of last century, as a culture, we took God out of life's equation. We took him out philosophically, psychologically, sociologically, educationally, judicially, medically, scientifically, politically. Our worldview shifted as a culture, and we put ourselves in the center of the universe. No longer is the creator in control, but we, as advanced human beings, now call the shots. At least that's what some people think. But the harsh reality is that man is severely flawed and is a poor excuse for God. It's why Western civilization struggles and finds itself morally adrift because man is not the one who decides what is right and wrong. We can't agree on it. It is God who objectively, sovereignly determines that. And only he can provide the moral absolutes upon which to build a civilization because without without them, without him, uh, we are destined to fail. But as a culture, we've been sort of sucked into a vacuum of ignorance and impiety, and moral relativism. And what does that mean for us as the church? Well, it means the pressure to conform is on. We don't have, you know, we don't have home court advantage anymore. It's an away game and the crowd is hostile, however you want to think about it. And yet within this cultural context, within this cultural reality, there's hope, there's optimism, because we are given the opportunity as God's people to share the truth of his love and grace and goodness. The opportunity to have an impact, we have the opportunity to be different to be holy, but that that takes courage. Not only that, holiness takes perseverance. Uh, You know, you've probably heard it said the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. That's very cliche, but very true at the same time. And there are going to be instances where we feel like giving up, giving in, moments we're tired, the pressure is wearing on us, family, friends, co-workers, peers pressure us to conform, and we start to wonder, man, is is this being different really worth it? But here's Here's the Apostle Paul's warning. He says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh or their sin nature from the, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. He says, let's not, let's not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Holiness takes perseverance. And holiness is defined by what you do. So oftentimes, People in the church want to define personal holiness by what we don't do. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people say, well, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't listen to secular music, I don't, I don't watch this, that, or the other thing, with the underlying assumption that somehow that makes them holy. Not necessarily. Trust me when I tell you I know some non-smoking, only Christian music listening, committed teetotalers who are far from holy, and frankly their lives are a mess. See, genuine holiness is really better defined by what you do. Do you understand the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus? Do you embrace him as Savior? Do you realize that by doing that uh, leads to a positional holiness before God, that your sins are forgiven? You're declared righteous forever and set apart for him. When it comes to practical holiness, which is the way you do life every day, forget about what you don't do. Do you show compassion to others? Do you demonstrate mercy? Do you tell the truth? Do you give to those in need? Do you extend grace to those who've offended you? Do you forgive? And do you serve others joyfully? And be honest about it because holiness demands it. It's really easy to to sit around 
like a self-righteous slob and say, well, let's see, uh, yeah, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't embezzled any money, I haven't committed adultery, I don't swear, I don't look at porn. I'm a pretty godly guy. I mean, you might even say holy. But let's face it, we love to, we love to measure ourselves against, against sins which for all intents and purposes are more externally blatant and in our minds more severe. And they're often the, one, they're often the ones we haven't committed. Right? But true holiness goes much deeper than that. It impacts every area of our lives, even the secret areas, the ones we don't want to admit to, the areas we don't want to talk to anybody about. God calls us, uh, and holiness calls us to brutal honesty. So tell the truth. I mean, how, how are you doing with bigotry, hate, anger, divisiveness, lust, judging others, racism, gossip, slander, greed, bitterness? pride. When was the last time you prayed and said to God, search me and know my heart, test me, God, and know my thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way of ever, uh, way everlasting. And see, here's the one final thing that I've learned. Genuine holiness begins with humility. Now, as, I, as I've already noted, a lot of people equate holiness with the ability to keep all the rules and regulations. When in reality, it's about facing the fact that we can't keep them. We can't do that. We can't, we can't be perfect. I can't be perfect, which is why I feel uneasy talking about holiness because I'm in process like everybody else. I'm nowhere near where I want to be or where I should be probably. And the, and the moment I start measuring myself against you or measuring myself against others or measuring myself against the world or presenting myself as better than everybody else, send me home because that's, that's not leadership and that's certainly not holiness. Keep in mind, Jesus had to deal with a, a number of very, very religious people who were way too confident in their own goodness and who liked to look down their noses at, at others. Um, they were the religious experts of the day. And one, once when talking to a whole group of them, Jesus said, let me tell you a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the religious expert, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But then the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you what, this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Holiness begins with humility. You know, in many ways, um, what Peter writes in this letter is not, it's not all that difficult to interpret or understand because he, he, you know, he acknowledges that life in a broken world can be painful, it can be hard. No one is exempt from suffering. No one, no one is exempt from the problems of sin and evil. We are all at risk. But our Heavenly Father loves us and has given so much to us, not the least of which is eternal life itself. Therefore, Peter says, with that being the case, he says to fellow Christians, prepare yourselves for life and, and set your hope on the grace of God. Think intentionally, think carefully. Act obediently, knowing that God has your best in mind. And be truly different. Be holy. May God grant us the ability to be just that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, as your people to understand this concept of holiness because it's easy to get mixed up on. It's easy to fall into the, the trap of thinking that it's all about how good I am and how much better I am than that person next to me. And we love to measure ourselves against others. 
We love to brag about those sins we have not committed, those blatant ones, while all the time secret sins we keep concealed to ourselves. The reality is there's nothing concealed from you. And our measure is against you, a holy God, set apart from human beings, from the creation, perfectly good and righteous and powerful and just. And measured against you, we all fall short. In some ways, Lord, we, don't, we really don't know much about holiness. We know that you love us and we've been set apart for you. We know that your Spirit's at work in our lives, transforming us to be more like Jesus. And so we, we, uh, we offer ourselves to you this morning and ask you to do just that. Teach us, transform us, humble us, Lord, um, as we learn and try to gain a grasp of this idea of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.